Aloha, my name is Maya Sutoro. I'm a peace educator and professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I'm also the co-founder of three nonprofits, Seeds of Peace, the Institute for Climate and Peace, and Peace Studio. This is something new. With this podcast, I'm so pleased to bring you conversations with change makers and influencers from the front lines of our communities. I believe their voices will deepen our curiosity and conviction and help us to consider things we haven't considered before. They'll help us be innovative in our thinking, and although their opinions in no way represent the organizations where I work, I'm really excited to share them with you. I feel certain they'll help us refresh our gaze, revisit our assumptions, and take action in brave new ways. Listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Prentice. Prentice is a movement facilitator, somatics teacher and practitioner, and is working at the convergence of healing, collective transformation, and political organizing. Prentice has spent the last 15 years bridging well-being and power building as part of work with organizations committed to social change. Most recently, as the Healing Justice Director at Black Lives Matter Global Network. In 2016, Prentice was awarded the Buddhist Peace Fellows Soma Award for community work inspired by Buddhist thought. At present, Prentice is the founder and leader of the Embodiment Institute and the Black Embodiment Initiative. Adding to that list, Prentice is the host of Finding Our Way, a wonderful podcast about which we will learn more today. Prentice, it is so wonderful to share space with you again here in Hawaii. This is such an important time for your work, as I see it, given police violence against black bodies, racial targeting of Asian American bodies, given the pandemic's effects on all bodies, we are in need of some somatic healing. So I've been really looking forward to this opportunity to catch up with you, to learn from you, and to share your important work with our growing listener base of folks who are curious about movement building, who want resources to take action in their own communities. Um, This series of Courageous Conversations on Community has brought me into the studio with individuals like you who are playing life full out and leading with real heart and courage. But, But such leaders need to find greater resilience and help to make their movements resilient, to feel joy as they uplift others and struggle for justice. So today, I want our conversation to be celebratory, to be uplifting. And thank you for being here to help us think about leadership for sustainable social change and wellness. You've helped many people lean into their discomfort and lead with empathetic courage, and you do give us hope that post-traumatic growth and deep healing are possible. So let's get to it. Would you please begin by introducing yourself to our community here at Brave Through, perhaps by sharing the story of your earth and water, a little bit of the journey that has led you to this work and helped bring you here today. First, I just want to thank you, Maya, for inviting me here. I'm really grateful for the invitation and excited for this project that you're doing and doing here in Hawaii, a place that means so much to me. My story starts in the South. I'm a Southerner. I'm a Texan in particular, which I think is important. Um, My mother is a nurse, 40 years now. She's been working as a nurse, and that shaping deeply helped me understand what care meant and how critical it was and the hardest moments of our lives. My father was a city council person in our local town. So early on, I would spend a lot of time at city council meetings and in our town, kind of seeing the inner workings of power, decision-making. And it sparked for me an ongoing interest in governance. 
how we care for one another, the political landscape. But I'll say I'm probably most shaped by growing up in a Southern church and growing up in, a, in the Black Southern tradition, the Black spiritual tradition that lives inside of many churches. My grandmother was a singer. Actually, my grandmother came from a long line of singers and poets, writers in Louisiana from the South. And so being in church on Sundays and feeling, for me, it was so much about the culture of the space, but feeling the harmonizing of the choir, the kind of collectivity you could tap into, the connectedness, the interconnectedness that you could find in our voices, in our access to spirit, in our resilience, in our joy, I think has really shaped so much about my work towards healing, my sense of what it means to be free, and my sense of what power can be uh, when, it, when it sits closely to love. So uh, I'm deeply shaped by being a Black Southerner, by being a Black Texan, and having those roots in Louisiana, North Carolina, all throughout the South. That is so gorgeous. I feel myself there almost, <laughs> as you describe it, you know, and it is a very bodily experience to have the reverberation of song and the energy of spirit that connects those bodies together. And, right. and I think that there is in that movement, in that celebration, in the, in the dance, in the sway, something that is so powerfully needed today. Right. And so I appreciate so much that story. I'd love to dive deeper into your work you're leading an institution and initiatives aimed at providing tools, resources, education, and a sense of community around healing and justice. Your current work at the Embodiment Institute and with the Black Embodiment Initiative provide focal point for the broader realm of embodying and embracing personal peace mm -hmm. and social justice as a way of life and as a daily practice. So can you tell us a little more about this work, how you define this work and how it has come to uh, define your sense of purpose today? Absolutely. I think I have to start with saying that there is an inextricable connection between our well-being, our emotional skillfulness, and the worlds that we create, how we structure things, what we think is possible in human relationship and human interaction, that there is an inextricable link. That is what sits underneath all the work that I do. How can we create spaces so that people can do the necessary healing work that comes on the other side of maybe generations of oppression? How can we do the necessary healing work to heal our sense that we might be more privileged than other people? That's That work of connecting ourselves back to each other is deeply healing and I think undergirds or supports the possibility of a more just world. And those are skills to be able to navigate our emotional terrain, especially in the midst of a world that might cause us to be reactive or feel, feel fearful, that it's incredibly important and increasingly important, I think, to develop an internal skillfulness, a relational skillfulness that allows us to, to have a myriad of relationships so that I'm not only seeking domination over another, I'm not only hiding in relationship to another, but I can experience mutuality. I can experience care and compassion. These spaces that we're creating are about that fundamentally. The Black Embodiment Initiative is a space specifically for black community. And we had a training in February that was attended by black people across the world. That's the beauty of this moment, kind of living inside of this COVID moment is that we can gather in ways that we haven't been able to gather before. 
So to heal together from the kind of shared experience of racism is really, really critical and important. And to have a, a kind of safe enough space to feel like we can delve into that. And the Embodiment Institute is leading multiracial healing spaces. So spaces for us to come together and do a similar level of deep diving into the ways that we are shaped to be in relationship with one another and, and making different choices about how we want to build relationship and therefore build the world around us. So in these spaces, we are practicing authenticity, we're learning boundaries, we're healing shame and internalized oppression. And we know that these new ways of being are things that we have to practice in, into community so that it becomes as easy to connect with one another as it is to brush our teeth. We're building new habits in relationship through mm -hmm. these projects. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you started acquiring these habits and how you found your point of entry into this work and how others might? Yeah, absolutely. It began with a question for me. When I realized that there were similar experiences of trauma that people were experiencing around me, it occurred to me that there was a social aspect of trauma. There was the individual experience, but there's also the social aspect of it. If there's similar threads and that we share similar experiences, there's a social element and therefore there's a political element too. So it really started for me in a, in a set of questions. What does this mean then about how we heal from trauma? Can it only be done? I think it absolutely has to be done in our kind of individual therapeutic spaces, but is that the only place where healing can happen? If it has a social and political element, where else could healing be happening? Where else could we be infusing healing? So the questions came first, and then I found my way to somatics training. I trained at a, a school, and somatics is about how we embody both our resilience, but how we also embody the fearful reactions to traumatic experiences and, and how our body holds on to those and contains those. So I found my way into a school that was teaching me about the relationship between our individual bodies and our collective or social bodies. I think I started studying in 2010, and it was a paradigm shifter for me. It made the world make sense for me, and it, it gave me a question to pursue. How do we heal at the level that we need to heal is the question that guides me every morning when I wake up. Thank you. Can you share a little bit of what you might have seen since that question first tugged at your spirit? Have you seen transformation? And... What does that look like exactly? Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot since that question first came to me. I was lucky enough to be able to practice and experiment. First, I worked as a clinician, as a therapist, but then inside of black movement spaces, I became a practitioner that worked with leaders and organizations on these questions of healing, trauma, conflict. So I have seen incredible transformation. I've seen transformation in people's experiences of their own lives, people that were struggled to connect, being able to connect, people that struggled to find their voice, being able to find their voice. By having the space, the resource, the time, the care to delve into their own traumatic experiences or traumatic experiences of oppression, but to be able to find a, a new way of being on the other side of that. I don't say that to, to make it seem easy, so it's a very challenging thing to heal. And sometimes inside of that, there's chaos or rupture, there's pain. But I do know that the, the possibility of transformation is one that we can't afford not to pursue. 
the possibility of healing is one that we can't afford not to pursue. And I've seen the way that we can access our power, that we can access our vision, that we can access our leadership when we're able to heal and heal together. I think about that and I'm filled with a sense of hopeful eagerness and curiosity, frankly, you know? And I'm wondering about whether we will find the courage to enable systemic change or broad cultural, political, economic change. Do you think that we will? Do you imagine this work will be slow going? That we'll have to be content with sort of small incremental changes at the personal level or you know, within a particular organization? It's a great question. It's one that I've been sitting with a lot lately. We are a year and some change post-uprisings around the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. And this question has come to me a lot of how do we change? Have we changed? And I think it's likely a both and. I think we have experienced moments of revelation in the past year, the past seven years. As someone who was a part of Black Lives Matter early on, I experienced revelatory moments, moments of significant shifts in a short amount of time in people's mindsets. Now, change also, even the change involved in healing, has to be sustained. And it's sustained through practice. It's sustained through shifts in how we govern. It's sustained in shifts to our structures. So there's always a relationship between what we might call the small changes or the changes that happen more internally or with a small group of people. That must happen, but it also must result in significant, I think, structural changes that allow that change to continue. If I do my individual healing work as a leader, but if I continue to experience trauma, it will undo that. So in order for healing to be maintained, we have to start to build a world that actually centers healing, that actually centers care. And I think we still have quite a ways to go. And ceases to do harm. Exactly. Are there other spaces that can be reached and need to be woven in uh, to the tapestry of this work? I think healing and embodiment is important to really everything that we do. It can be inside of everything that we do. I think that my work is to support people to feel the possibility outside of their current paradigms and understanding. My work is to wake people up to experience and to feeling. And in that, commit to creating their own spaces where more of this is possible, to nurturing those seeds. That is my work. And I imagine that I will do it in a lot of different ways, but it feels like a significant part of my journey this piece with the Embodiment Institute, it feels like a significant piece of my journey, but I see it, I see the larger mission as that awakening of experience. Can you tell us something that might surprise us, those who are listening, something that we may not have known that you know because you are doing this work day in, day out? Yeah, I think it's this, that inside of many social movements, I won't say all, but inside of many social movements is the desire to heal and to seek healing for our communities. And I think that what I've witnessed is that many people lose sight 
of that, that that is the purpose. I think for people outside of certain social movements, they may not understand that at the very core might be grief. At the very core might be pain. And the desire to have communities that have enough space to feel the grief, have the harm stop, and have the ability to self-determine, to say, this is actually what keeps us whole. This is actually what cares for us. So it's important for me, I feel like everywhere I go, that the pursuit of power is, is a necessary one, to have the power to say, this works for us, this doesn't work for us. But all of it is headed towards the impulse, which I think is a very human impulse, is a very organic impulse towards healing. That sits at the root of especially the social movements that I've been a part of and that I feel like are, that I am in the lineage of, is that impulse, that deep, deep human impulse towards healing. How do we best mourn mm. as a world today? How does that happen so that we can grow and heal and find a bigger, better, more just peace, you know? Mm -hmm. We have to allow it time. And I have been heartened I think, by the questions I've been asked about this last year, kind of post-uprisings, this reflection that we are in. Can we reflect on what's changed and what hasn't changed? I'm heartened by that reflection. And I know that we have to keep taking time. We have to keep stopping in our tracks to say, what has happened? What has been the cost? Can I care more about what has happened? Can I find myself in another story? That, there's an honor. There's an honor in taking time to grieve, to feel, and not to, I, I often say in my work that what we are moving towards is curiosity over control. And many times with all of our emotions that feel unruly, we wanna make them happen in a short amount of time, as quickly as possible, get over them. But how do we give the spaciousness for the magnitude of the things that we've experienced and let that be a worthwhile endeavor in and of itself. So for me, let's take some time mm -hmm. to reflect and feel. And I feel like what you're saying is also that we need to be willing to be uncomfortable. Yes, that's right. And we need to keep probing and finding new stories right. within ourselves and in each other. And, and so there needs to be a lot of storytelling happening That's right. too. The yeah. discomfort piece, I'll just say, you grow in discomfort. Mm. And I think there can be a tendency, and it makes sense inside of a, we don't wanna feel pain, but discomfort grows you, mm. it matures you. And until we're able to feel discomfort collectively, we will keep interrupting our maturation. And I really long for that for all of us. Thank you. I think about the people who are at the heart of social movements, those that are aspirational and those that are successful, those that are still in the shadows and those that are at the center. I want to think about your call to all of these people. What can they do after protest? What should they be doing with and for one another? How should they see themselves as leaders and movement builders, even if the movements are being led from behind, beside, beneath, and from the, the shadows still? It's a beautiful question, because what happens after protests is so important. 
because it's the often the work of relationship building. Protests serve a purpose. They are a moment of opening, a moment of visibilizing something, refusing to be silent, and it's important. But the work of the day-to-day relationship building, of listening to your neighbors and what they care about, and deciding to move collectively with that information, that is hard work, and that is, I won't say it's the work that matters most, but I almost would say that. It's necessary, it is not always seen, and there's such a beauty in it. There's such a beauty in that organizing work of of coming together and saying, what do we care about and what are we gonna do? Even if it's five of us, if it's 500 of us, the question doesn't become more or less relevant in the number. What do we care about and what are we gonna do? What do we need and what are we gonna do? So I think that I would say to those folks and I would say to myself and all of us is that the more that we can value the hard work of relationship, the more we will see the kinds of change that we are longing for happen. They won't happen only or necessarily because we have a protest. We, they have to happen in the hard work of relationship. And there's beauty there. We will change in there. We have to change inside of relationship. And that's the gift of them. So I hope that our next phase of social movements prioritizes relationship over any visibility or whatever accolades we might get. If we can say, I have deep relationships, I, I care about people and they care about me, I think that's, that has more worth than almost anything else. And that'll keep us strong. Absolutely. In the midst of the storm. Connective tissue. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about finding our way. Mm-hmm. Great title. Thank you. Can you speak a little bit about the podcast, what the journey of bringing it to life has been like for you and and maybe share some of the most memorable moments of learning and insight from conversations you've had. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I said to you in an email that I feel like there's a there's a conversation our podcasts are in, so I feel grateful to be here again. Finding our way came to me a few years ago where I wanted to have a space to have conversations by with people who seemed to have a piece of the puzzle. There were so many questions about where are we going, where are we headed, what's happening? And I didn't think there was one person that had an answer to that, but I thought there were many people that were experimenting, trying things, creating inside of this question, and I wanted to assemble those voices to create a kind of choir again um, that could inspire us, that could sustain us in this change work that I think is necessary. It's been an incredible journey. The people who have been on the podcast, the people who have loved the podcast, it's been absolutely life-changing for me. I think some of my favorite moments, gosh, there's so many, it's really hard to say, but having the writer Alexis Pauline Gums on the podcast, it was dreaming about our relationships between the ocean, the creatures in the ocean, and, and our own ancestors. I think having Tarana Burke on this season, the, the founder of Me Too, talking about the power of grace and what it has meant for her to cultivate a sense of grace in her own leadership and why it's necessary for us to do that. Miriam Kaba, who recently was on the podcast, who is an author, has, been, has written in the New York Times, talking about a world beyond police violence, how we can actually care for each other. It was a gorgeous gift, a deep dive into the human condition and, and, and what we can do despite 
ourselves, despite how complicated we can be. Priya Parker, talking about conflict, um, the author of The Art of Gathering, we had a, a nerd out session on kind of conflict facilitation. It's been a journey, and I think the topics that we touch on, they have deep philosophical roots, but we try to make them accessible to everybody when mm. we discuss them and, and try to inspire people to ask their own new questions. Well, as a listener, I've been inspired. Thank you. Um, and definitely the podcast has led me to deep dive thinking and the kind of spaciousness that you spoke about. Yes. I would like to say that your podcast and the movements you're working to build and all of the issues that you touch, they're all expansive and inclusive. You strive to be intersectional, it's clear, and yet all of the work seems to also lead back to something really personal, mm. like self-discovery, self-preservation, self-awareness, and mindfulness of self. I feel like we contain multitudes, right? And that's why, why that task of knowing oneself is complex. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but tell me a little bit about the resources that you've tapped into mm. and that you can share with our listeners that help us to really know ourselves and to do that deep work of self-discovery and knowledge building. I'm going to start with a kind of simplistic answer, maybe. But my greatest resource is my breath. And I find my breath through meditation. I find my breath in prayer. But I find that I can digest and understand my emotions through breath. And that discovery, the discovery of center in my somatics practice, finding my center, which is a constantly moving, adaptive, but connected place inside of me, has allowed me to get to know myself without feeling like I would be lost in that, to ask questions from a steady place with myself. So breath, the cultivation of breath, the cultivation of center are at the root of every practice that I do. I dance. It's another way that I find center. I move and see if I can still find myself, if I can still authentically express what I'm trying to say. I dance. That's a significant one. It's been with me for a long time. And I have relationships where I feel seen, where what is still in my periphery can be shared with me. I have relationships that see me, people who are honest with me. And I don't think you can know yourself without letting yourself also be known by yourself or other people. And it's a process. I mean, I'm changing every day. I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a new, that's a new take. Okay, nice to meet this part of you but I'm open to the relationship. I have a relationship with myself and that allows me to have relationships with others. Do you ever feel fearful? Oh, yes, all the time, all the time. I mean, I feel fearful, but it feels smaller than life. I definitely feel fear and sometimes it gets really big. There are moments in, in movement work where the fear has gotten very big, but life continues to show me that it's bigger and I'm grateful for that. What? makes you feel most grateful right now? Young leaders that I get to work with. I'm in my middle age at this point, but the people who are younger than me who are coming up deeply inspire me in a way that I can't really express. I am going to be a parent for the first time, so I find myself opening up to 
everything through that process. I, I keep saying to my partner, how come nobody told us that this is just life changing? <laughs> so new life, that life continues, that people ask questions I've never thought of, young people ask questions I've never, uh, that haven't occurred to me yet. That lets me know that something is bigger than what I can conceive and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that humbling, for that right-sizing, for the persistence of creation that is beyond what I know. I thank you for your healing work, for the curiosity that you ignite and the nourishment that you give and the thirst that you quench. Mm. Listeners, please share generously. Please take space for yourselves. And I invite you to start your own journeys by clicking read more on the podcast description and the links that Prentice is sharing with us. Perhaps you'll find your starting place, your point of entry. Thank you all for the work that you do, for the people you are, and for spending this time with us. Join me for future conversations with really thoughtful, creative people who are helping us to wash our eyes and nourish a sense of possibility around difficult social challenges. Thank you so much for listening. Please share and stay in the conversation.